The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts. Radio. News. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Hewitt podcast available every morning on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen. It's Thursday the 15th of February in London. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today, Israel quits ceasefire negotiations as fears grow about its new Gaza offensive. Vladimir Putin says Joe Biden would be a better US president for Russia. Plus, why a shortage of dollars is driving international companies out of Africa's largest economy. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. The United States has told its allies that Russia could deploy a nuclear weapon into space as early as this year. Sources have told Bloomberg that Moscow is developing a space-based capability to knock out satellites. On Friday, US President Joe Biden confirmed that the Kremlin had been developing an anti-satellite space weapon, but said there's no evidence Russia had decided to move forward with the programme. There is no nuclear threat to the people of America or anywhere else in the world with what Russia is doing at the moment. So what we found out, there was a capacity to launch a system in the space that could theoretically do something that was damaging. Hadn't happened yet, and uh, my my hope is it will not. Joe Biden's comments come after the US House Intelligence Committee chairman issued a cryptic statement about an unspecified national security threat. Russian President Vladimir Putin says he is categorically against the deployment of nuclear weapons in space. A nuclear warhead in orbit would violate the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, to which Russia is a signatory. The Ministry of Defence insists that Britain's nuclear deterrent remains safe, secure and effective after confirming a Trident missile test failed, sending it crashing into the sea. The embarrassment was compounded by the fact that both the Defence Secretary Grant Shapps and the head of the British Navy were on board the submarine HMS Vanguard at the time. Sources insist that the failure was linked to the fact that it was a test. Had it been a real launch, it would have been successful. However, the last known test of the UK's Trident nuclear deterrent in 2016 also failed. The system costs around £3 billion a year to maintain. Almost two years after Russia began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, President Putin's forces have regained the initiative and put Zelensky on the back foot. Their advances were underscored by the capture of the eastern city of Advika this weekend after months of fighting. At the same time, a $60 billion US military aid package for Ukraine remains stuck in political limbo in Washington. Terry Haynes of Pangea Policy says the Biden administration has to do more to get tough on Russia when it comes to the war in Ukraine. The ineffectiveness of Russian sanctions, part of my point has always been that they're badly enforced, if at all, uh, combined with uh, late provision of weapons or no provision at all, and on top of that, a, uh, a lack of being able to use the all the tools of the presidency, including the Defense Production Act, to uh, top up stores for both the United States and for allies. Uh, and what I get is, uh, is somebody that claims to be as forcefully supportive for Ukraine as possible, but in fact is not being. All I'm suggesting is not a partisan point. I'm suggesting this is a whole-of-government problem, not just a Democrat-Republican problem. 
Haynes believes US military aid for Ukraine will make it to the president's desk, but the legislation still faces formidable obstacles in the House. And now to some corporate news. Profits at HSBC slumped by 80% in the last three months of 2023. The lender took a $3 billion impairment in the fourth quarter on its holdings in China's Bank of Communications. CEO Noel Quinn said that the payment will have minimal consequences. I just want to make clear that has no impact on our capital position of any significance. It does not prohibit distribution because it's non-capital impactful. It is a technical accounting issue. And I also want to reiterate, we have strong confidence in the China economy. We believe there are huge opportunities ahead. And we believe that our partnership with BOCOM has been a good partnership for 20 years. And that status has not changed. HSBC CEO Noel Quinn there. His pay has almost doubled to £10.6 million in 2023, whilst the company's overall bonus pool rose by 12%. The bank also announced a $2 billion share buyback and dividend of 31 cents a share. Turning next to Citigroup, which has increased pay for its CEO Jane Fraser by about 6% to $26 million last year. Fraser was the only major bank boss to get a pay rise the previous year as well. City saw a 38% drop in net income in 2023. Bloomberg's Doug Kresner has the details. The bank awarded Fraser a total of $1.5 million in salary, plus $24.5 million in stock-based and cash incentive awards for 2023. The increase comes after Fraser initiated what's being called the largest reworking of Citigroup in decades. The aim is to propel the bank from an underdog to one competitive with its more profitable peers. Last month, Citi said it would cut 20,000 roles. In a regulatory filing, the Compensation Committee said Fraser's priorities were sound. Last year, Citigroup shares rose nearly 14% after three consecutive years of declines. In New York, I'm Doug Krisner, Bloomberg Radio. In the UK, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is estimated to have £23 billion of headroom for tax cuts in his upcoming budget. That's according to the Resolution Foundation think tank, which says that that would give him space to cut the basic rate of income tax by 2%. Bloomberg's James Walcock has more. The Chancellor has made no secret of his desire to cut taxes. He made that clear to Bloomberg a number of times in the last few months. So I haven't seen the final figures from the Office for Budget Responsibility, so I don't know uh, the headroom that I'm going to have to play with. But what I can tell you is what I want to do. If I can, I want to reduce the tax burden. But the question has been if he has the fiscal headroom. The Resolution Foundation say lower borrowing costs and high tax revenues mean he likely will. But the think tank also points out those higher revenues come from freezing the thresholds. People start paying higher rates of tax. They argue that despite Hunt's rhetoric, Britain is being offered a cut sandwiched between hefty tax rises. In London, James Woolcock, Bloomberg Radio. Now, in a moment, we'll bring you more details on this possibility that Russia could send nuclear weapons uh, into space and the warning from the United States. Plus, our interview with the CEO of HSBC, Noel Quinn. You heard a little snippet of it, but of course, we'll have more for you on that in a moment after the bank published its latest results. Another story that caught our eye this morning, though, from Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lara Williams is about the dilemma of climate proofing her home. So, Lara's just recently moved into her first home as a homeowner, and she's been looking at the environmental considerations of making it more energy efficient. So beyond the big things like double glazing or insulation, Laura's done a fascinating dive into the running costs and carbon costs 
of all of her appliances. So not just how much they're costing her in terms of electricity bills, but also what the the carbon cost would be, both of the ones that she owns already, obviously the carbon going into the manufacturing of these processes, but also what the carbon cost would be if you were to replace them with something new, which might be more energy efficient, but nonetheless is going to end up with more carbon consumption. Yeah, I look, I think that the data is totally fascinating. She's got her own appliances that she's measured. She's measured the ones that she could buy and done a little comparison. Um, but she's sort of gone all, you know, all the way around the in order to come back to the point, which is you should keep hold of your machines, even if they are less energy efficient, because actually buying a new one is, is so kind of environmentally costly. So I really like that. Although I did... I, I did notice that Lara only puts her tumble dryer on twice a week. And I thought that that in and of itself was pretty energy uh, efficient in the UK, which is very cold and wet. Some of us are still drying our clothes in our living rooms on, on, <laughs> on hires that a tumble dryer inside. One actually interesting fact in this piece that I really, uh, that struck out for me is that mm. residential electricity consumption in the UK has actually fallen by 12% in the mm. 10 years to 2018. And this is because of improvements in things well, like the, the light, light bulbs, bulbs we're using and I'm appliances. I'm surprised that it has allowed us to be so much more energy efficient. And yet, having said that, UK homes are um, you know among the biggest kind of large polluters in the UK there's still a huge way to go in terms of insulation and and uh, home heating and so much more. But anyway, really nice piece by Lara Williams on the Bloomberg Terminal this morning. Well, let's turn back to our top story now. The US has told allies that Russia could deploy a nuclear weapon in space as early as this year. It comes as Putin's war in Ukraine has turned in the Russian president's favour with Russian forces putting Ukraine's Vladimir Zelensky on the back foot. Joining us now for more is Flavia Kraus-Jackson, Executive Editor for Economics and Government in Europe, the Middle East, Africa and Latin America. Flavia, good morning to you. Russia is said to be planning to deploy nukes in space. Is this a new arms race? Is it sabre-rattling? I mean, it's an absolutely sort of terrifying prospect, isn't it? And as we were trying to sort of craft that headline, I think it was inevitable that people were going to be transported back to a time of Cold War and 1953 and nuclear threats and Oppenheimer-ish sort of red um, and I think it's important to sort of underline a few things. I mean, these are, um, there's definitely a lot of saber rattling and the sort of climate between the US and Russia right now is so grim and there's no trust um, whatsoever. But, you know, it's important to say that this is something that is not being directed at someone or at something. Um, but it certainly indicates that all the rules that had been in place and that had given people a certain degree of, of, of guarantees during the Cold War are now no more. Uh, Russia has reneged on, on its smart agreements. And, you know, if, if, if true, this would be a violation of the Outer Space Treaty. Now, of course, Putin has denied that, but he also denied that he was about to invade um, Ukraine, and then he did. Yeah, so this huge threat, as you say, um, is kind of apocalyptic, isn't it? Um, if it is uh, true or were to happen. But then this also um, makes us think about where Putin is in terms of the invasion of Ukraine. That was two years ago, on the 24th of February. There is now grave concern that the war is shifting in Russia's favour. 
so almost incredible to sort of look at the way the conflict has has turned on its head, right? I mean, if you look at the the first year, it was very much, um, you know, the, the Western allies themselves thought that uh, Russia would uh, be in Kiev's doors within days, and that proved to not be true. And the the resistance uh, by the the courageous Ukrainian people was sort of surprised allies and convinced them to um, give money and then give. Um, all sorts of, of, of weapons. And, and certainly there was an expectation in the first year that the counteroffensive had actually even made some gains and maybe it was even possible that uh, Ukraine could win this conflict. And then you've probably reached a sort of peak of when Fregosin and his march uh, on uh, on Moscow, which was the biggest threat to Putin's authority in absolute decades. And I think that sort of sent a signal to the world of like maybe his his grip on, on Russia wasn't as strong as people thought. But of course, that proved to be misguided as well, and this much vaunted counteroffensive just ground to a halt. Uh, Ukrainians, I think, now are very frustrated with the idea that Western steadfastness isn't isn't there, and that, you know, somehow things have really radically not gone in their favor now. Um, but I think it's also important to know, you know, and just looking at the, the timeline and the ups and the downs, that you know, you know, we don't know. Um, or there's lots of unknowns, right? We don't know how the how the election is going to go, um, and you know, who knows? Things could change. But right as things are right now, uh, certainly, if you're Putin, uh, you're feeling quite smug. Okay, Flavia Christ Jackson, our executive editor for economics and government. Thank you very much for joining us. Now let's turn our attention to the results from HSBC. The bank reporting a slump in fourth quarter profit hit by a $3 billion charge over its stake in a Chinese bank and also the sale of its French business. HSBC announcing a $2 billion share buyback. Now Noel Quinn has been speaking to Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix. So in terms of the CEO pay, Noel Quinn nearly doubling his pay in 2023 to over £10 million. That is about $13 million. Uh, So the results from HSBC, not the only company reporting, of course, uh, NVIDIA aftermarket uh, in the United States will be absolutely vital. We've had Rio Tinto out just earlier this morning too. We'll have Glencore. Uh, But HSBC's um, Noel Quinn speaking to Bloomberg just this morning. So I want you to have a listen in to that key interview. Well, I'm very pleased with the fact that we've been able to report 30 billion uh, of PBT, which is obviously a record. But also, I'm very pleased with the return on tangible equity. We've been working hard for the past four years to make sure we deliver mid-teens returns, and we did that last year. You know, before no- material notable items, we had a return on tangible equity of 15.6%. Um, I'm also really pleased with the dividends we've announced, 61 cents, which is the highest dividend for the full year since 2008. And we completed $7 billion of buyback. And we announced another $2 billion, up to $2 billion buyback this year. So I'm really pleased with that. Strong capital generation. And I believe with a CET1 ratio of 14.8%, we've got strong potential future capital uh, distribution as well. In the fourth quarter, we did have some noise in the numbers. We had three principal mm-hmm. items that pulled down the profit. The first one was... We rebooked the loss on sale of our uh, French operation now that we completed that transaction. It's neutral for the year because we took a credit on that in Q1 and we've taken a charge in Q4, so that nets each other out and neutral. There was an adjustment for hyperinflation in Argentina driven by the devaluation that took place. That's really a technical issue. And then the third issue, uh, technical issue, was BOCOM. Uh, we have a, had had an investment in BOCOM for 20 years. 
Every quarter we have to do a valuation in use test. We did that again this quarter, updated the model, and it compares the yep. value in use to the carrying value, and no. the value in use dropped below, and that resulted in a three billion charger. I just want to make clear that has no impact on our capital position of any significance. Mm -hmm. It does not prohibit distribution because it's non-capital impactful. It is a technical accounting issue. And I also want to reiterate, we have strong confidence in the China economy. We believe there are Wait. huge opportunities ahead. And we believe that our partnership with BOCOM has been a good partnership for 20 years. And that status has not changed. And, and all given what you've just explained, are, th are there any large asset sales ahead? Is there anything else that you're thinking e either that you need to sell off or actually that there, there could be some kind of accounting concern? Well, I think we've got the final uh, leg of our disposal of Canada to come at the end of Q1. Um, that will be a big uh, sale completion. We're on track for that at the end of Q1. That will allow us to, as we've already announced, first use of proceeds. We would like to use the first use of proceeds as a special dividend of mm -hmm. 21 cents. We continue to look at the portfolio to make sure the portfolio um, is strategically correctly positioned and no businesses are underperforming. But I think we've done the material transactions, uh, but we will continue to adapt and change if we feel as though part of the portfolio is not strategic or is underperforming. I also want to recap on Q4. If you revert, if you take the profit, yeah. the underlying profit before material notables, Q4 reports would have been a 7.3 billion uh, PBT, which is well up on the prior uh, quarter in 2022. No, just going back to some of the, your potential significant sales, are you also close to identifying any potential new bolt-on acquisitions? We keep looking at bolt-ons, and we've done quite a few. I was really pleased that we were, um, we've announced the acquisition of Citibank's wealth business in China. That follows um, two other investments we've put into China recently, taking our shareholding in our insurance joint venture from 50% to 100%, and the securities joint venture from 50% to 90%. So you can see our confidence in China is still strong, and we're investing, and we've done three bolt-ons there. We'll continue to look for bolt-ons, particularly in our wealth management uh, business. Um, we believe buying additional product capability, specialism, or distribution capability uh, would be interesting, but we'll only um, announce anything on that where, as and when we got a transaction to, to complete. Have you identified anything at the moment, and in which part of the world? Oh. We're always looking. Uh, the, the world is more, it's more around our wealth business, uh, and we're trying to re, really build out our international wealth and international retail banking proposition. And wherever we see opportunity to enhance that and accelerate the organic growth plan, we'll consider those bolt-ons. But nothing's in, 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 in the near-term pipeline at the moment. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe.
You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.